In April 1914, while witnessing the Paint Creek Mine War in West Virginia, Ralph Chaplin penned the song Solidarity Forever, inspired by the collective efforts of striking workers. From these beginnings, the song spread as an anthem for organized labor across the world. Solidarity is a central concept in politics, animating resistance to communism in Poland, the struggle for women's rights, and the fight against apartheid, to say nothing of the day-to-day -day practice of supporting our friends and neighbors in our communities. But what does solidarity actually mean? I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast. And today, we'll give you the city view on solidarity. Hello, and welcome to the City Politics Podcast. Uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with me at the assembly line of modern podcasting is Constantine Vossing. Constantine, can you believe that this is our final podcast for this summer? I can hardly fathom it. No, hard to believe. I'm looking forward to the next season then. Uh, what am I going to do with all of my time apart from, you know, all the research and teaching prep and this thing that I've heard about that's called a vacation, but I'll believe that when I see it. Uh, but, you know, we're going to have to get rid of academic griping and move on to our fascinating conversation today, which is all about solidarity. In order to explore this concept, we are joined by two excellent guests. We have Patrick Diamond in the virtual studio. Patrick is a senior lecturer in public policy at Queen Mary University of London. His research examines ideas and paradigm policy change in political economy, social democratic ideologies across the European Union, and the interdisciplinary study of the British Labour Party. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. It is an absolute pleasure. And we also have friend of the show, Lise Butler, with us today. Lise is a lecturer in modern history at City University of London. Her research explores modern Britain, specializing in political history, left-wing politics, and the history of the social sciences. Welcome back, Lise. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So today's topic is solidarity. Solidarity is a really fascinating but somewhat nebulous concept that seems to be everywhere when we talk about politics. And yet oftentimes we have a difficult time getting our hands around what it actually means. Uh, so we're going to do some explaining it like I'm five. Why? Because I don't know a lot about stuff, but I do love learning. Uh, so the first question for explain it like I'm five, ripped shamelessly from Reddit, goes to Patrick. And I'm going to ask you, what is solidarity? Well, that's a tough one. But let me answer not as a political scientist, but as someone who is interested and engaged in politics, as well as, as it were, the theory of politics. So to me, solidarity means um, a feeling of common interest and purpose. Um, and I think that there are two features that build on that. One is it's a feeling of purpose that unites a group or a class. And in addition to that, it has an aim. It seeks through action to achieve something. That to me is what solidarity means. Great. Well, that is exactly the sort of answer we're looking for and explain it like I'm five, because I even now have a better sense of what solidarity is. But you know what would really help, Lise? If you could give us an example of solidarity in history and when it made a difference. I've been anticipating this question, and I'm actually really struggling to think of one example of solidarity that I think encapsulates what Patrick has, has a very nicely defined solidarity to be. Um, and I think that's in a way indicative of how challenging a concept it is. There's so many different moments when you can see examples of solidarity, social solidarity, institutional solidarity at play. So it occurred to me that we might see solidarity currently being shown between, for example, 
progressive Democrats right now and more mainstream actors in the Democratic Party in the United States. We might see solidarity in the women's movement historically between different kinds of women. We might see um, solidarity in the sort of historic coalition that makes up the British Labour Party. But in all of these different contexts, there's points of solidarity and there's points of division. And I think that that's what makes this such a tricky and sometimes slippery concept to get our head around. That, I think, is an absolutely fair point, because I have been struggling with the same problem while thinking about solidarity. What does it actually mean in the 21st century? But before we start digging in to those questions, I got to hand you over to Constantine, because he has his crystal ball, and he has to ask some questions. You guys, uh, welcome to the torture room. 10 questions, 10 yes or no answers. And I know uh, you really want to elaborate on them right away and, uh, you know, to say how things are really more complex than just yes or no. Uh, But if you could just hold on a little bit and we collect the yes or no answers and then we elaborate on them later. So we have 10 questions uh, about solidarity, uh, 10 questions where we look into the future, where we explore the concept. And we'll start with Lise uh, for the first five questions, uh, yes or no, and then we switch the order around so that Lise also gets the sort of the benefit of hindsight for the second half of the 10 questions. So, Patrick, are you ready for the crystal ball? I'm, I've never been readier. Excellent. Question number one. Are humans innately destined to have more solidarity with their close family than some larger social group? Yes or no? Yes. Lise, yes or no? Yes. Question number two. Once COVID and corona and pandemic are distant memories, will the value that people in Western societies place on solidarity be greater than before? No. No. Question number three. Is solidarity possible for groups that are larger than our current nation states? Patrick. Yes. Lise. Absolutely, yes. Question number four. Do we need to encounter aliens before we would be able to experience and practice solidarity with all humankind? Patrick. No. Please. I think that's a silly question, but no. Is solidarity difficult to build and easy to destroy? Patrick. Not necessarily. Please. Yeah, no. I think it's pretty easy to build. All right, let's switch the order and we'll start with Lise now and then move on to Patrick. Question number six. Josh Sorel stressed the importance of myth in mobilizing social movements. Is solidarity necessarily based on shared myths? Please. That's a good question. Yeah, to some extent, I think it is. Maybe not myths, but ideas. Yes. So I take both of those as a yes. Question number seven. Can leaders in politics, governments, and social organizations instill and create solidarity? Please. Yes. Patrick. Yes. Question number eight. Do identity politics undermine solidarity? Please. No. Patrick. No. Question number nine. The welfare state is institutionalized solidarity. Does this type of institution require close cultural affinities between the people for which it is created? Please. No. Patrick. No. Question number 10. Once the definite history of the 20th century is written, Will the 1900s be declared the golden age of the rise of solidarity? Please. I reject the premise. There will not, I'm a historian, there will not be a definitive history of the 20th century. And no. Patrick. No. Thanks for doing the crystal ball. We've agreed on everything. Yeah, that was our first, our first complete agreement uh, across (laughs) the crystal ball, having done 13 of them. 
This is our 13th crystal ball. And lucky yeah. 13, complete agreement. But, you know, agreement doesn't necessarily shut down conversation because I think there's going to be some interesting reasoning behind why, why you answer yes or no to these, these questions. So, I mean, I think the first part to start is really with the first question, which is about close family ties. So both of you said that we're going to have a greater sense of solidarity with our family members and with the larger social group. And I think most people would agree with that, right? You know, it's not a controversial question. I think the interesting question is why? You know, why do we feel greater affinity for some people than others, right? I mean, I think that's a, a good starting point. So I wrote my book on a guy called Michael Young, and he was obsessed with this idea that there was something intrinsically important about the connection that both the immediate and the extended family had. And that there was some very, very, very important solidaristic bonds, communitarian bonds that could only be had in the in the immediate family or in the extended family, sorry, in the family more generally. And that was premised on his understanding of biology. That was premised on his understanding of sociology. And that was also a implicit critique of a model of social organization that was rooted in, uh, sorry, a model of politics that was rooted in the trade unions and in organizing around state institutions, which he saw as being a problem with the Labour Party more generally. So that was the kind of vision in which the family was at the origin, the origin point of solidarity. And in some ways, it was a very socially conservative vision. I mean, in saying that I think that um, solidarity is stronger in immediate families, I'm not saying that that is where we should be focusing our, 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 our where we should be trying to organize. Um, I think that, you know, uh, you know, people do have ties to their their close families. Um, in some cases, in some cases, they don't at all. Biology is not destiny. So I think it but but I think, you know, in, in many, many cases, people do feel a strong sense of affinity or kinship with their with their families. But that's not to endorse a, a model of political organization or social organization that necessarily takes that as given and necessarily tries to uh, extrapolate and extend it to other parts of society. Yeah. So when you ask the question, um, one issue that it brought to mind for me was the famous quotation um, from Margaret Thatcher, which she gave in an interview with Women's Own magazine in 1987. And she said in the interview, there are individual men and women and there are families, um, but there's no such thing as society. And that just strikes me as uh, an important claim in respect of this discussion, because what is Margaret Thatcher trying to do there? Well, one interpretation is that in a sense, she's trying to undermine the sources of solidarity that the left would confer privilege to, which are of course about the bonds of class, the bonds of union solidarity, the bonds between workers and so on. And instead she's trying to say, no, what really matters is the bonds between individuals and their families. And that seems to me to be you know, an important idea in terms of the, the attack on traditional forms of solidarity, which became very prevalent in the 1970s and 1980s, and of course has had some major effects on the direction of British politics and policy making in the subsequent period. Yeah, so how far can solidarity go? Uh, and, you know, there were two questions in the crystal ball about that. Uh, uh, one was, um, you know, can we have solidarity beyond the nation state? Uh, and, and the nation state is so critical here as a point of departure because that's the, the locus where institutionalized solidarity, um, you know, was, um, it took place. So that's where the welfare state is organized. Um, that's uh, where uh, that form of, that particular historical form of institutionalized solidarity um, 
is organized. Um, so that's why the, uh, the nation state um, is so significant in this context. Um, but both of you said that, yeah, it is possible to organize solidarity beyond the uh, nation state. Uh, why are you so optimistic about that, please? I'm gonna come in here and suggest that um, part of what we're, part of the problem here is just how many different meanings we can impose on solidarity and the many different ways that it's been used. Um, and perhaps we're gonna, you, you wanna come to this later in the discussion, but I think it's important to foreground what we're trying to talk about before trying to say, can does solidarity only exist in the family or can it exist across borders, etc. Solidarity is a word, right? It's generally been associated with different kinds of progressive politics from the 19th century onwards, but it can denote very different modes of activism and organizing. So we see it, of course, uh, associated with international socialism in the 19th century with the, the, um, the, the, the international. You know, I'm tempted to start singing Solidarity Forever, but I won't because that would really ruin this podcast. But it also has much, much fuzzier meanings. And so, for example, it's often deployed by figures associated with the ethical socialist tradition. And there it tends to be associated with ideas of organic community rather than formal organizations through, say, um, transnational worker organizing or trade unions or whatever. So solidarity is intrinsically a concept that lends itself to these different meanings, and these dis different spheres of community and organizing. And that's why I think we need to be quite cautious about this concept. The more interesting question is how has solidarity been deployed and what has it been made to mean by different political actors? I think what's also interesting about the current situation is the way in which solidarity has become an idea or at least that there are ideas associated with solidarity which are becoming much more actively discussed on the right of politics, particularly in the UK. Um, so when I think of the work of people like Danny Kruger, who's a Conservative Member of Parliament on the idea of fraternity or um, associated ideas in the Conservative tradition, it seems to me that, although I think Lisa's absolutely right, that obviously the idea of solidarity clearly has connections going back to conceptions of ethical socialism. It seems to me that in the more recent period, solidarity is being an idea, is an idea which in many ways is being captured or being used much more effectively by the right in politics. And I think that has a lot of implications for how we think about the idea. And it does come back to Constantine's question, really, which is, is solidarity an idea that works in terms of expressing forms of transnational solidarity? I think the answer of those conservative thinkers would be, it doesn't work in that sense. It only works in a way in which um, you can have these thicker organic communities where there's in some sense, much greater clarity of identification between the different actors. And so, yeah, I, I think that while the left obviously has a great deal at stake in the question of solidarity, it seems to me that a lot of the energy in thinking about at least concepts concerning solidarity seems to be on the right of politics in the current situation that we're in. I think we might also distinguish between solidarity and community. And then there's another interesting conversation to be had about community. But I think what some of the things that Patrick has just identified there, I would almost be more inclined to associate them with community. You know, can you have, and I think it's true that the right has been very good at mobilizing around ideas um, of community. But yeah, I mean, I think that, some, that in some ways we're using the word solidarity to imply some sort of emotional connection with a, with a, a larger social group. And I'm not sure it needs to, me to mean that. I think you can have solidarity with people you've never met. I think you can have solidarity with groups with whom you have a sense of common cause. And I think that that 
can be based on ideals or on a sense of identification that is not the kind of emotional bonds that you necessarily have with a smaller social group you kind of know um, and have a, have a sense of affinity to. Do we need the other for solidarity, the exclusion? Uh, do we need the, the, the opposition? Do we need to distinguish ourselves from others in order to develop solidarity with some group at whatever level, uh, at the level of the nation state or at a lower level? And uh, you know, I'm using this opportunity now to defend the alien question because that's what the alien question was about. And uh, it comes from uh, conversations that um, we've had in theories of international relations uh, classes in grad school um, about th three years ago, uh, something like that, right when I went to grad school, maybe a little bit longer than that. And in these classes, um, uh, you know, there were people who were interested in social psychological perspectives um, uh, on uh, international relations, which was just started to sort of, uh, people started to become interested in those at the time. Um, and there the, the question was, and uh, that was a the heated debate as I remember in that particular class, um, whether there is such a, a thing as, um, as global solidarity without the other. And of course, you know, as long as we don't meet aliens, there is no other, you know, solidarity has global boundaries. And uh, uh, of course, that's a, it is in a sense a silly question because, well, uh, you know, it's from, well, maybe we're gonna meet aliens soon, but uh, it's not something to, um, you know, to realistically speculate about at this point. But the, the, the real underlying question is um, uh, whether it's at the level of humankind or at any other level really, uh, is solidarity possible without outgroup rejection, without outgroup opposition, uh, as social identity theorists would call it? Yeah, it's obviously a great question. Um, so for me, in a sense, one wants to be able to answer, to in a sense, reject the premise of your question, which is to say that in order for solidarity to be generated, there has to be a process of othering, there has to be an alien. Uh, actor or, or agent, there has to be somebody against which we are defined again. We have we, that we wish to define ourselves against somebody or something. And as I say, in a sense, one would want looking at this in a more hopeful or imaginative way to think that that wasn't necessary. But if I think, for example, about the politics of the welfare state, it is, I think, very striking historically um, that in many, certainly in many Western countries, some of the, the ethos in which the welfare state has been embedded has been concerned with defining categories that do draw distinctions between different groups within a population or between citizens and non-citizens or between the deserving and the undeserving. And I think if you think about the language of the deserving against the undeserving, that has been used as a category to define who is and isn't entitled to the goods and benefits and services and protections that the welfare state affords. And it is a, a mechanism or it's a, a set of claims on which politicians from both left and right have often fallen back. They've often resorted to that as a means of defining who is a citizen, who is entitled to welfare, who isn't. So that does, as I say, it does bring to mind, um, I think, as your question inferred, that in reality, yes, perhaps sometimes solidarity does rely on drawing in some sense crude distinctions between um, we against the other. Um, as, as uncomfortable as I am with that, I think we have to accept that historically that at least to some degree seems to have been the case. I certainly do think that othering uh, is a common other side of solidarity. I think that as a species, we do have some basic conception of solidarity. We have a notion of human rights. We have a sense, I think most human beings have a sense that 
human beings have more value than other species. So I, I do think that there is a, a species-wide solidarity that we have with or without aliens. I do think that often um, solidarity requires a sense of common purpose. I think it is perfectly plausible that we could, and I think should, and in some ways maybe are, developing a sense of solidarity around the threat of climate change. This is a, a an enemy that does not require um, aliens on spaceships to create a sense of common purpose. So uh, I don't think it requires we, that we require another group necessarily, another um, sentient group uh, in order to develop a sense of solidarity. But I mean, again, I think this speaks to the slipperiness of this concept. Um, I think humans have solidarity as a species on some levels, and, and then they have many, many, many divisions on others. So you know, <laughs> uh, but no, I don't think aliens are required. Yeah, I mean, this this question really put me in mind of uh, of the song that Luce just mentioned, "Solidarity Forever," uh, and I have I won't sing it, but I will read to read to you part of the song, which is: "Is there aught we hold in common with the greedy parasite who would lash us into serfdom and would crush us with his might?" Uh, you know, that is a very direct manifestation of this idea that we have solidarity against other groups or against sort of shared threats, at least. And I mean, is this an intrinsic part? I, I think Lisa's probably right that it's not. I think that, you know, we can have common challenges, perhaps, that create bonds of solidarity. Uh, although on the issue of climate change, you know, someone might say, well, you know, climate change isn't impersonal. It's driven by the interests of an extremely wealthy and influential class of people in the world right now who benefit a great deal from the fossil fuel industry and will do yeah. anything to protect it. So there is perhaps, you know, the uh, sort of rival on the other side, even in this issue. But, you know, part of me, and this could be sort of the, the liberal optimist, is the idea that we don't need this opposition in order to have fellow feeling uh, with other human beings. Now, but this brings us back to the very question that Lisa's is asking, you know, is solidarity just fellow feeling? Is it sympathy writ large? Well, I mean, I think that by perhaps by starting this conversation, by talking about, for example, the family, I think we are missing, you know, the, the concept of solidarity that is expressed in solidarity forever, um, which is a extremely important idea that through organization, um, workers can um, challenge the parasitical entrenched hold of, of, of capital and capitalism and capitalists. You know, I, I think that we've started with this kind of woolier, softer conception of solidarity, and perhaps we've missed some of its more radical potential. Well, from a social psychological perspective, if I may, um, I, I think what uh, what uh, what Lisa is saying uh, about the sort of the potential of having solidarity without the enemy, even though the enemy is always lurking, and I think David's point about that was 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 absolutely um, was absolutely spot on, um, because even a an impersonal uh, threat such as climate change uh, has those individuals that that, that benefit from it. So there's always the possibility to break down a a threat, uh, you know, to the personal level. But you know, from the perspective of social psychology. Um, uh, social identity uh, and how it emerges, uh, uh, how there's this, 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 this huge theoretical debate between two perspectives. One is exclusionary. It says that a social identity needs the other uh, in order to, uh, to, to work, and solidarity, by extension, uh, works in the same fashion. Uh, I am solidary uh, with uh, a group in order to feel better about myself, in order to do things for myself as part of the group with which I then associate, in order to make that possible. 
And that's a bit of a pessimistic view on solidarity, but there's another one and that's a, uh, that's a view that comes from, from, uh, from evolutionary uh, uh, views uh, on, on, on human development. And that's uh, solidarity and social identity, which is uh, closely linked, not the same, but which is closely linked to that concept is something that uh, helps us as groups of people who sort of associate with one another in a, um, in a matter of solidarity. It helps us to feel security. It helps us to, to institutionalize security. It helps us to do these things, not at the expense of others, but for the benefits of our group and not necessarily at the expense of others. And there are these two conflicting perspectives. And I'm not suggesting that we can reconcile them today, but I wanted to say, even though we started with that sort of a, a bit more negative perspective, there's that more optimistic view uh, as well. And what this makes me think of, and now I'm moving on to another crystal ball question that I think is directly related to this, is the question of uh, the, the shared myths. You know, irrespective of whether solidarity comes from a process of exclusion and othering, or whether it is based on a, a group-specific process of whatever, however large a group might be, you know, there doesn't need to be the enemy, a group-specific process of creating sort of shared benefits. Um, uh, you both said it needs the myth. It needs the myth, right? Uh, why, why were you so, and I think you also answered really fast to that one. Yeah, it needs the myth. Um, uh, and you said it was a good question too. So maybe we'll uh, start with Patrick this time. Why do you think that that myth is so important? I think when, when you use the term myth, it rather suggests that in some sense, you know, myth is, a myth is something which is uh, disreputable, um, that it's um, creating a distorting image or an untruth. And for me, that kind of um, depicts myth in a, in, in an overly negative way, because uh, you know, myth is, is just an interpretation of reality. Um, but going back to what Lise was just saying about you know, solidarity in relation to uh, the labor movement, I mean, the labor movement mobilized a series of images about the experience of capitalist exploitation in the late 19th and 20th centuries, which were incredibly powerful um, in terms of creating certain forms of politics and also creating political change. Now, whether that involved mythology or myth, again, comes back to what you mean by mythology or what you mean by myth in the context of politics. I mean, yes, it may have at times involved very evocative images or symbols representing, for example, the capitalist class or the process of capitalism itself. But whether they were myths, I think, is questionable. They were trying to make real or, or trying to depict you know, real experiences, but in ways that had emotional depth and, and really tapped into people's feelings and their experiences and got them to act in ways that, as I say, led to political change. So yeah, my response to the question is to say, let's not see myth as something which, yeah, as I say, is, is, is disreputable or something that we should uh, somehow disavow or, or seek to unpack or unpick. You know, myth can, can play a very positive role in creating necessary forms of political change. Yeah, I thought, I think that's really well put. Um, I think when you asked the question, Constantine, I said, I don't know about myths, but ideas. You know, I agreed that um, some sense of, of idea or some intellectual community was required. I mean, I just keep going back to, you know, Benedict Anderson's imagined communities, and that concept can be applied very capaciously. And perhaps in some sense, all communities are imagined. I'm also thinking here a little bit about John Lawrence's recent book, Me, 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 which is on uh, the idea of community in um, 20th century Britain, he's very much responding to a kind of communitarian turn, particularly a communitarian turn on the left, which suggests and 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 a 
concern among social theorists. I'm thinking here of, um, for example, bowling alone, that we've lost some sense of community in our, in our societies and in our social institutions. And he is responding by saying that uh, fundamentally we have different kinds of solidarities and different kinds of communities, which are just as valuable, uh, different, but just as valuable as those which we used to have in, you know, traditional working class communities or in more local, uh, local sites and spaces. I think that solidarity, community, shared identity does require some idea of what you're part of, but I don't think that necessarily needs to be a myth or a story. I think that all sorts of different ideas can provide the ammunition for that sort of a move. I just want to leap in here and um, pose a question that relates to Lisa's book. I know this podcast is not about Lisa's book, but maybe she doesn't mind turning it into a podcast about Lisa's book. I'd, um, but I, I think any, any in, time. <laughs> in, uh, no, but in, in your in your really important book, Lisa, I think that one of the issues that really comes to the fore for me is the way in which Michael Young, about whom obviously you're writing, is himself in some ways wrestling with the changing politics of solidarity in post-war Britain. Because, yeah. I mean, this may be, I'm, I'm going to um, crudely generalise what is a hugely rich and sophisticated argument, but it seems to me that one of the points he's making is that the traditional forms of predominantly male industrial worker-based solidarity, which had, of course, animated the labour movement in the early stages of the 20th century, was somehow losing their purchase in the period after the Second World War, and that what the left had to do was try to identify and harness different forms of solidarity, which weren't just exclusively about you know, class-based solidarity in relation to the structure of the economy. Was Young indeed trying to identify new sources of solidarity? Yeah. And I guess my, the underlying question is, um, why did the could the left have succeeded better in, trying, in doing that? I mean, why, why didn't it seem to work? Thank you so much for engaging uh, with my book, Patrick. I'm, I'm so pleased that you have. Um, you're absolutely right, I think, to identify that Young is fundamentally concerned with the limitations of a model of political solidarity that's rooted in the trade union movement, in work, and in the male industrial working class. And that's why he's so obsessed with the family and with community, because he thinks that the Labour Party is basically, if it, if it remains tied to this laborist model of solidarity, it's doomed. Um, he sees that as intrinsically a doomed proposition. And one of the things that I think is interesting about his thought is he says this model of thinking about solidarity has ignored women. It's ignored non-workers. It's ignored children. It's ignored older people, right? Now, of course, lots of women are working at this point, something that Young is not very good at, at acknowledging. But nonetheless, um, there is an interesting point there. And so he becomes obsessed with looking to sociology and looking to the social sciences for expressions of social, of, of social solidarity that are outside of the workplace and outside of the factory. And part of this is a response actually to the a, a political problem the Labour Party has that women aren't voting for it as often. The Conservatives in the 1950s are very good at mobilizing the concerns of women around high, uh, rising prices um, and consumer pressure to get them to vote Conservative. Um, so there's actually some real practical politics associated with this. So that's kind of the, the big intellectual project there. And I do think it's an interesting intellectual project. And for the, the move for him is to say the, the left needs to, or, to organize and orient not around trade unions, but rather around things like consumerism, 
right? So, because everyone's a consumer, right? We might not all be workers, but everyone is a consumer. And we also need to look to community and uh, that there's all this emphasis on traditional working class communities. Now, I find that whole argument very interesting, uh, interesting enough to have written a book on it, but I'm actually very critical of that argument. And I'm critical of the contemporary manifestations that it often has on the left, because I think that it often overlooks the importance of institutions in building and creating solidarity. And I think that often when you shift your focus from, for example, the trade, you know, trade unions as a site of organizing towards something more amorphous like community or the family, you lose that institutional heft. You lose what makes collective organizing around collective things potentially successful. And I think a particularly interesting example of this actually is in the T Tony Blair's Clause 4, right? So uh, New Labour, of course, famously replaces the Labour Party's traditional commitment to the nationalization of the means of production to a much fuzzier, uh, with a much fuzzier commitment to common endeavour in the spirit of solidarity, tolerance, and respect, which is an interesting example of the way in which the concept of solidarity can be used to actually undercut things like nationalization, which we associate with traditional welfare state models of, uh, of solidarity creation. I think that the, the focus on institutions uh, is a really, really important one. Uh, and, you know, this is uh, obviously uh, uh, always, you know, you say institutions and political scientists will always think about, uh, you know, hundreds of ways in which institutions matter. And I want to add one here in addition to what Lee said. I think institutions also shape the expectations of people that you want to appeal to as a project of sort of the bearers of solidarity and what kind of myth or what kind of idea and what kind of story of solidarity they expect from you. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit here. Uh, I think this is something, and this is uh, the work that I do on the 19th and early 20th century. The, the labor movement all over the world it was very, very similar in, in its basic demands. It was very similar in its idea that there is uh, the social class that is the historical actor that will bring about socialism in one way or another. But the stories that these leaders told to their supporters in different national contexts, which were shaped by different national institutions, varied widely. Uh, and sometimes we look at these strategies and these stories mm -hmm. that go hand in hand with them uh, as sort of uh, from the perspective of um, sort of functional uh, uh, sort of functional outcomes. For example, people have uh, dissected what Karl Kautsky said in the late 19th century about the necessary demise of capitalism as something that is just not true and it's not going to happen so soon and uh, it's a sort of it's a misinterpretation of the real world as it is. But in reality, it was his way of formulating a vision in a country where a truly repressive and, 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 and hopeless environment, you know, a very repressive uh, political context, very exclusionary institution, where this kind of institutional environment made an approach that promised the overthrow of the existing order without getting your fingers dirty too much at the same time, where that was actually an appealing myth, vision, idea, narrative, whatever you want to call it. Whereas in the British case, in a different set of institutions, much more inclusionary, not perfectly inclusionary, but much more inclusionary than in Germany at the time, in the British case, there was this almost technocratic focus on the ownership of the means of production and would develop a plan for how to do that. And then they did. And they implemented that plan uh, between 1945 and 1951. And this vision wouldn't have worked in the German case. 
in that particular institutional environment. And the British story wouldn't have worked, uh, uh, and the, the German story wouldn't have worked in the British case because there was not that degree of hopelessness. So long story short, the, the story of solidarity uh, and the subjects of solidarity, um, and that's what Lise spoke about. She spoke about the subjects of solidarity, which, which are the people that are supposed to be you know, in solidarity with one another. But in addition to that, also the question of what is the narrative of solidarity? How do you instill solidarity? That depends on institutional differences, in this case, national political institutions. And I know that Lee had other institutions in mind, but uh, in addition to that, there's also these political institutions that uh, make a difference. So um, I think it is very important to look at these political, historical, institutional differences. We've talked about the subject of solidarity, who's supposed to be part of uh, a sort of a conception of solidarity and who belongs. We've talked about the, 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 the stories that work to convince people to engage in solidarity with one another. So I want to build on that uh, argument and ask you, what can political leaders, what can grassroots organizers, what can people who think that we should practice solidarity in one way or another, what can they actually do to create solidarity? Uh, so there's some great examples, obviously, of grassroots organizations, um, you know, mobilizing to create new forms of solidarity in a contemporary context. I mean, I'm just minded of one example, Citizens UK, um, an organization that organizes particularly um, in sectors of the economy where there aren't traditionally high rates of unionization. Um, they have obviously in the last uh, 15 years or so, you know, mobilized around a series of issues, some of which are to do with, with the struggles of workers. So um, getting better paying conditions in workplaces, some of which are to do with um, tackling environmental issues and improving um, you know, quality of life and the local environment and the housing in which people live. Um, and I think in some sense, Organizations like Citizens UK speak to this point about trying to create new mechanisms or new associational forms that can promote solidarity in a context where, you know, we're in, we live in an economy and society where the traditional forms of solidarity that were characteristic of industrial labor have obviously to some degree broken down. I mean, you can argue about how much that's the case. And so we do see these new associational forms coming into uh, being which um, do seem to have been successful in mobilizing often diverse groups. Coming back to your question about how do you create forms of solidarity in which citizens from quite diverse backgrounds can identify with one, with, with one another's interests? Well, it clearly is possible to do that in the context of these more grassroots campaigns. I think on political leadership, it's a really interesting question. I mean, clearly leadership can play a role, but in from my perspective, I see a lot of the energy, the dynamism, the action coming from actually from grassroots forms of organization rather than from political leaders trying charismatically to kind of will the means by standing on a platform and telling people to unite in solidarity. I'm not sure how much purchase that has, but these may disagree. No, um, I think it's really interesting. Um, so, you know, when you ask how do we build solidarity, I mean, I think solidarity often emerges from good institutions, institutions where there is a, a sense of community, a sense of shared values, a sense of shared purpose. I think solidarity can emerge um, organically from, from those contexts. But I actually think that solidarity is not just an innate thing that can emerge organically. It's actually a value that needs to be taught, particularly in the context of any kind of organizing and anything oriented, oriented around um, collective action. So, I mean, you know, I've had the experience of being on strike 
quite a few times over the last few years, um, as have many members of the university and college union, because there's been a lot of strikes around pensions. And a, a key part of that often is explaining the, con the concept of striking and the concept of solidarity that is at the heart of striking and industrial action to my students, right? Um, I think many of us, uh, and maybe maybe many of those listening will have had the experience of standing on a picket line and explaining to people what a picket line is and why it is symbolically important that they, that, that they do not cross it. And um, so I don't think, I mean, I think that if we talk about solidarity in this kind of loose amorphous way as almost synonymous with community or shared feeling, then we can talk about it emerging from all sorts of different contexts. But if we talk about solidarity as a practice that is rooted in the labor movement and in social justice struggles, then I think we need to think of it as something that needs to be taught and needs to be practiced deliberately and consciously. We often treat solidarity almost like it's, you know, the holy spirit of politics and it just sort of emerges out of the sky like a dove uh, and creates bonds. But that's not the case. I think I 100% take the point that this is something that needs to be made. Right. And perhaps this was one of the things that was undermined with the trend of neoliberalism that emerged in the 1980s. And as Patrick reminded us, you know, Margaret Thatcher saying something like, you know, there's no such thing as society. Uh, this undermined, you know, the learned nature, perhaps, of solidarity, at least if we take this uh, perhaps more materialist class-based analysis of where solidarity comes from, uh, we can see perhaps a, a battle of myths emerging in the late 20th century between the solidaristic community and the sort of the brave neoliberal individual uh, that's, you know, well, is it still ongoing? I mean, I, I still feel that this is an ongoing struggle in our society. Uh, between sort of individualism versus solidaristic, you know, action. I mean, this characterizes politics in a lot of ways, I think. If you look at Boris Johnson, for example, and I don't want to get, you know, put my partisan cards on the table, you know, he portrays himself as being, you know, this exceptionalist man, right, who sort of can barrel through our politics. And a lot of people like that. Right. Uh, I don't think Boris Johnson is someone who would identify solidarity as a key part of his political brand. And he's been pretty good at selling it. Uh, so this, is this a struggle that we're dealing with still, this social democracy versus neoliberalism in the 21st century? Are we ever going to escape from it? Or perhaps it's socialism rather than social democracy. I think another way in which, uh, which neoliberalism or any policy for that matter affects the the future of solidarity is by what the research on uh, social policy calls policy feedback effects. And that means that not only does, for example, a privatization of healthcare reduce solidarity by just a means of being a less uh, solidaric policy, it also makes people feel less solidarity with others as a result of having to take private healthcare. Um, so there is research on these policy feedback effects that shows these effects. So neoliberalism, uh, um, the Ayn Rand versus Karl Marx sort of battle that that uh, of titans that, um, that that David was referring to, uh, also trickles down into policies. Uh, and these policies then uh, are not just relevant because they regulate our lives as policies, but also because they they shape uh, opinions. And this is something that I want to ask Patrick actually, because Patrick is an expert on public policy and social policy. Um, uh, what's the status of uh, the, 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 
the, the, the policies of the welfare state right now and in, in, in which direction is it going and how is that going to uh, be either driven, no, be not either, but be driven by solidarity and the, the, the ability to mobilize it and how does it affect solidarity maybe in the long run? Well, I think it's certainly true. I mean, what really strikes me um, about your question is that in a sense, the potency of the, the rights project to attack the institutions that have underpinned solidarity at least for a large part of the 20th century. And the fact that social democracy or socialism or the left had no project of comparable potency. So it wasn't just that social and economic change was undermining traditional bonds of solidarity, but as your question, Constantine just inferred, there was a very deliberate attempt using the instruments of public policy to attack the institutions that have previously inculcated solidaristic sentiments on the part of large sections of the population. And so liberalizing institutions, privatizing housing, shifting some of the provision of healthcare into the private sector, promoting private provision in education, the list goes on. And its effects have been, I think, very significant. I mean, there is a circular question. What is undermining solidarity? Is solidarity undermining the institutions or is, are institutions undermining solidarity? I don't myself think we need to get too caught up in resolving that particular conundrum, but you can see what's going on here. And I think going back to the previous question, for me, the challenge in all of this is can movements on the left, can social democracy or socialism develop a set of ideas that are as compelling in the other direction, um, which can reverse some of the effects that this form of or strain of market individualism have had on, on the institutions. And just to finish, I mean, to come directly to your question about the current position in the welfare state, you'd have to say, certainly in, in the UK context, I think it's also the case in the United States, but also interestingly, in other countries where you may not expect this to be the case. So for example, Sweden and some of the Nordic countries, you know, the welfare state is being significantly uh, undermined. Policies which are designed to foster common citizenship and contribution and feelings of solidarity in some sense are being unpicked. And I think we still haven't um, come to terms with or seen the full consequences of that process. So I think these are really important uh, developments in thinking about an alternative political project. One of the stories that is often told about politics in the post-war period is that the right are individualists and the left are collectivists, and that there is a kind of central ideological battle whereby the left want more state, more unions, um, and the right want right to buy, um, and they want um, neoliberal neoliberalization and privatization. A lot of the historians whose work I follow and who I work with have been, I think, challenging that story about the left in interesting ways. Um, so, for example, there's a great article called Telling Stories About Post-War Britain by Emily Robinson, Florence Sutcliffe Braithwaite and Natalie Tomlinson. It was published in, I think, 20th century British history, it might be contemporary British history, a couple of years ago. And it talks about how across British society in the 1970s and 80s, you see rising individualism. Um, and this is happening not just on the right, it's also happening amongst institutions and social groups we tend to associate with the left. So we see that in the rise of different kinds of social movements. We see that in the rise of various aspects of feminism. We see that in the ways in which 
the politics of the left is often less or, or becomes less oriented around, for example, trade unions and more oriented towards social movements. So anti-racist politics, feminist politics, um, local organizing, community groups, things like that. I think the left actually shouldn't necessarily try and position itself always as the ideological home of collectivism in all of its forms. I don't think that that's correct. I think that there's a strong strand of individualism um, on the left, and it's an important one, and it's a compelling one. And the way, in, and I think in some ways, the right has been more successful at mobilizing that individualism and a real frustration with the state uh, in all of its forms, including the welfare state, but also the, the bureaucratic state, and um, has, in a sense, pushed, made the left defensive, uh, forced it into the defensive in defending some of the institutions that we value uh, that are associated with the state. I, I couldn't agree more on that point. Uh, you know, anyone who sort of I've talked to about my, my work on what freedom means knows that one of my bet noirs is the capture of the concept of freedom by the right wing in right wing discourse, because freedom is, for me at least, you know, an intrinsically left wing idea, right? You know, it is something that emerges from struggles for equality. It's something that emerges from the idea that we should be free from exploitation. You know, it is a key part of the history of progressive or left-wing or socialist thought that does seem to get neglected uh, in the way in which we sort of create this Manichaean division, you know, of, of Ayn Rand fighting Karl Marx to use Constantine's memorable description. Although I do object to giving Ayn, giving Ayn Rand the status of Karl Marx. It should be Marx fighting Hayek, perhaps, would be a, a more suitable comparison. But I think that's that's 100% correct. And this is, you know, perhaps shows us the importance of myth right? Because this is a very effective myth that has pervaded politics, not just in the United Kingdom, but probably in most of the Western world is, you know, right wing means freedom and individuals, left wing means community and, I don't know, welfare programs. And, and bureaucracy. And bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that perhaps is not a reflection of our actual lived experience or of history. Mm -hmm. I think that that's true. But I would just say, going back to the po point I made earlier about the way in which uh, thinking on the right has changed. I'm not sure whether, I think certainly some of the strands of conservatism in the British context, I think that there is a certain amount of discomfort with being seen as a party of freedom, that there's a desire, in fact, in some ways to distance themselves from certain aspects of what they would see as the Thatcher legacy. And so if you can look at a whole range of, you know, the discourse speeches coming out of politicians from David Cameron through to other figures, I mean, I mentioned earlier that the example of Danny Kruger, but it seems to me that they're wrestling with trying to develop a form of politics, which is in some sense trying to restate the underlying communitarian ideals of conservatism and trying to get away from the idea that conservatism is only about radical libertarianism and trying to, in a sense, reaffirm the commitment to some form of solidarity, uh, some form of fraternity or community, even if it's not solidarity in the sense that we're talking about here. And of course, interestingly, there's also been a similar counter move on the left, where of course, there is a strand of the left, again, in the British case, I'm thinking here of, for example, Blue Labour, where the emphasis is very much on trying to uh, re-evoke the sort of ethical communitarian traditions on, on the left. So, you know, the crossovers and cross currents are, are interesting and certainly, you know, we shouldn't fall into the idea that um, there is a, a kind of um, a simple division between uh, freedom and collectivism being played out here. No, certainly, I, I think the, the right wing is just as trapped in this myth as the left wing is for the reasons you say, you know, if we think about conservatism or conservatism in the history of political thought, 
You know, you think of someone like Edmund Burke. Uh, Edmund Burke does not have a lot in common with, uh, you know, the big proponents of libertarian freedom, right? Uh, this is not a, nat it doesn't even sit well, really. Uh, so trying to reconcile these traditions, both on the left and the right, is a difficult proposition. But, you know, people don't do nuance. Uh, at least they don't seem to do nuance anymore. And, uh, you know, when we talk about politics as complex, well, people, you know, they seem to not even do primary colors anymore. They do black and white, and that's it. So trying to problematize uh, the, the histories of the left and the right in sort of the Atlantic democracies is not an easy task. Thankfully, there's a lot of very intelligent people working on it in politics departments across the world, and I am not one of them. We have Hayek and uh, Karl Marx in the ring, and now Edmund Burke is entering too, right? Uh, is that a full cast? With a steel chair. Again, I feel like this sort of returns to one of the points I think was made that was made earlier in this conversation that in a sense, the problem with solidarity is that it is, it's a word a, a, onto which all sorts of different kinds of ideological commitments can be projected, right? And so in discussing solidarity, we find ourselves suddenly discussing, you know, the whole kind of Western ideological and intellectual tradition, right? Because it is a concept that lends itself to that kind of very amorphous interpretation. Let me talk about uh, another sort of specific uh, sort of applied question of solidarity, and that's the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, and, you know, this is something that uh, I asked you in the crystal ball as well, and uh, you both said no. You know, Corona might be over, it might not be over, but once Corona is a distant memory, once we're past this in some form or fashion, you know, not ending up, uh, you know, in the same way in which it was before, but in some form or fashion, we're not experiencing constant lockdowns anymore. That's how I understood sort of Corona being a distant memory. Um, uh, you know, you both said that at that point in time, there's not going to be a higher level of solidarity on average than there was before. Uh, so, so Corona, the pandemic will not have a a solidarity enhancing effect. Um, why were you, why do you believe that is? So I think that the argument that's being made here is that um, COVID is a, the, the experience of COVID, the, the pandemic has been so dramatic in its effects that it will have this transformational impact on the way that um, society is organized. And I think there is a, a certain historical parallel that some commentators, even some historians have tried to draw between the experience of the pandemic and the experience of, say, the Second World War, which you might say is bizarre because the two are clearly very different experiences. But the argument that's made is that the Second World War had a profound effect on the way that people in a country like Britain think about the world and what's important and what they want from their lives. And so this leads to um, a mood of um, radicalism, which then manifests itself in the election of a Labour government in 1945, which carries through all of these radical changes. And of course, um, you know, there are some, as I say, who've argued that in a similar spirit, the pandemic will create a similar or a, an equivalent mood of a, a commitment to change, um, that the pandemic reinforces that, reinforces the view that there are many things in our society that have to be dramatically um, improved the state of the health system, the dramatic inequalities in public health outcomes for different sections of the population, the distribution of economic insecurity, um, the way in which the pandemic has shone a spotlight on the disparities and disadvantages that characterize our society. Now, you know, I think that the, the argument can be made very eloquently as to why the pandemic should produce this form of radical change, but I just don't see the evidence for it. So if you look at opinion surveys 
at least those that have been undertaken in recent months, there does not seem to be any uh, indication of any sort of dramatic shift in terms of uh, how citizens view the way that our institutions are currently organised. I don't see, for example, any surge of support for dramatic shift in terms of redistribution or changes in the tax system or a dramatic shift in the nature of the welfare state. But beyond that, there just isn't the sense that this is likely to lead to a dramatic shift in the political mood. And as was said, you know, we're talking in a context where, okay, Labour has just hung on in a, in a by-election in Batley and Spen, but the, the general sense is that the Conservative government remains popular. And I think this comes to another point which we should explore, which is about the, the politics of pandemics and the effect that they have. Because again, I think there's a, a sort of utopian sense among some on the left that you know, pandemics are an experience that are going to reinforce a sense of collective sentiment. And to come back to the word that we've been using amorphously in an ill-defined way throughout this conversation, solidarity. Um, but of course, pandemics can have the opposite effect. They can reinforce people's sense of perhaps individualism or even in some instances, you know, a desire to, um, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, the importance of the other, and you see that, or othering, and you see that around the politics of vaccines and who has access to healthcare systems, which is, of course, going to be a global and not just a national issue. So, yeah, for all those reasons, I just, I don't buy into this idea that the pandemic is going to have this sort of transformative effect in the way that I think some commentators have tried to imagine. If a sort of this BDMI retreat into the private, uh, you know, as a consequence of uh, not even knowing how to deal with other people anymore once you meet them, right? I mean, that's a sort of on an everyday level is something that, you know, that might be added to your argument. I mean, returning to the sort of historical analogy that Patrick presents, that of the Second World War, the lesson that I take from that is that the way in which we understand the experience of the pandemic will be very much informed by what happens after it. So the Second World War is understood as a period of, of, of social solidarity in a large part because of the way in which it was deliberately con constructed as that uh, in, in the wake of the war. So, you know, there's been a lot of revisionist historical scholarship on the idea that there was, a, you know, a Dunkirk spirit or a myth of the Blitz or a kind of particularly communal sense in British society during the war, the idea of social solidarity during the Second World War was actively constructed by historians like Richard Titmus, for example, who was a social policy thinker who, who wrote the official histories of the Second World War. Um, it was promoted in government propaganda, and it often really served to paper over and cover up what, what were some pretty profound fractures in British society, some of which actually became worse and deepened during the Second World War, um, which is not to say that there wasn't a collective endeavor to, you know, to win the war and to get through it, um, but it is certainly not simply a story of, of social solidarity. So I think it will depend on what happens next. And um, so far, I think we have seen the pandemic, you know, uh, deepening social divides rather than reducing them. Yeah, my impression is that we'll get a sense of how the pandemics affected social solidarity probably in about 20 years when there's a BBC prestige drama set during the great pandemic. And that will tell us what the story is, how the narrative has been shaped, because it's exactly like Lee says, right? You know, the stories we tell ourselves about the Second World War are largely shaped in retrospect. You know, if you look at, say, the French national myth, everyone was in the resistance. Uh, you know, no one was actually fighting for Vichy. Uh, if we look at the way that uh, the Soviet Union and now Russia commemorates the great patriotic war, not a lot of people talk about sort of the 
commissars standing behind the waves of waves of human soldiers, right? And the brutal side of that element, you know, it's all reshaped within the context in order to produce solidarity uh, or not, I guess, depending on, on what narrative we're talking about. So I, I don't know whether we can actually make a call on the pandemic at this point, because some genius at the BBC might reshape perhaps what was the most boring global crisis into something that's like a really thrilling moment of the nation coming together and then transnational solidarity as we all get vaccinated through the miracle of AstraZeneca. That could be the story that gets told if we get a good person to tell it. But, it, you know, who knows how it turns out? It might get told by trying to think of someone terrible, uh, Julian Fellows. Uh, and, you know, it might just be a, a Downton Abbey's tale about how, you know, everyone was given a good jab in this country and the rest of the world really bungled it. And, you know, that could be it, right? Uh, it's hard to tell from uh, our perspective. But it's also, I think, important to say that, of course, well, I think you just inferred this in what you said, but it's very, we're very early in, this, in the unfolding of this, uh, of, of this event. And, you know, it's quite possible, for example, that the, you know, the economic consequences, the long-term economic effects could be much more serious much more profound, the loss of jobs, the rise in economic insecurity. So I don't think we can rule out that um, the pandemic will have effects that could lead to certain forms of political change. But as things stand now, it just seems relatively unlikely. But just as narratives are, you know, competitive processes, as, as David, uh, you know, showed us, I think in a very sort of an illustrative way, uh, you know, and it depends, you know, on people who tell the stories and, you know, who will have the institutional backing, you know, working for the BBC obviously helps, uh, you know, or for the Sun or whatever, uh, you know, media outlet might be sort of, uh, might be in charge 20 years from now. Uh, so that, that all matters. Um, but I think what I was also thinking about are the actual policies. You know, we've explored that notion that policies obviously affect our lives. You know, they, they, they regulate aspects of our lives. They, they, they decide who gets what, uh, how and, and when. Um, but they also shape uh, sort of uh, views about, uh, in this case, solidarity. Um, and since this is an ongoing process, is there something that can be done, Patrick, right now? Is there something... Is there, is there a corona response uh, package that would help to, to sort of to, 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 to change some of this, not just the, the people's, not just the, the regulatory aspect of it, sort of to help people deal with the consequences of corona in a more equitable fashion, in a more solidaric fashion, but also to shape that long-term after, political after and narrative after effects of, uh, of corona? I think in terms of policy, uh, we could, of course, discuss sort of different national policy options, but it, it would seem to me that more than anything, this is a global policy issue. I mean, there is going to be no way out of this pandemic without serious transnational responses. And I mean, personally, I mean, you, know, you guys probably are, you know, you study this much more actively than I do. But my sense at the moment is that, the, you know, the global polity has almost never been in a weaker position. Um, I mean, I'm personally very pessimistic about you know, the current um, status of, of multilateralism and the way that international institutions seem to be working. There is, of course, some optimism about the Biden presidency and the impact that that may have, but we seem a long way from being able to forge a, a really, you know, compelling global response that can provide a, an adequate transnational answer to the problem of COVID and the pandemic. And, you know, it really comes back, I think, to some of the core issues that we were discussing right at the beginning of the podcast about who is it that we relate to and can we relate to those across borders? And it would seem to me that in some sense, a pandemic does 
you know, it, it does remind, it must surely remind people about the extent of human suffering in parts of the world that are a long way from where they live. In terms of building sort of a, a better sense of global justice, I, I think you're quite right to be skeptical, Patrick. I, you know, as, as someone who is a, a self, a, very much a rootless cosmopolitan, uh, you know, the idea of transnational solidarity seems to be at a pretty low point. But I would say, you know, if we move back to the national context, I think one of the policies that I think would build solidarity in the aftermath of the pandemic would be something like a universal basic income. Uh, one of the things that came out of this pandemic is, you know, a lot of people are very vulnerable based on their employment. People who are in precarious employment have been forced to take extraordinary risks during this pandemic. Uh, and, you know, we call them, you know, the frontline workers and we clap for people who have been working in, you know, supermarkets in sort of jobs that are often treated very poorly in our public discourse. And a lot of these people are there taking very strong risks that we wouldn't take because they are in a more exploited category of people. Universal basic income would essentially give people the security that this pandemic has really shown uh, to be an acute problem for the majority, perhaps, of people in this country. Uh, so, you know, if I was in a, in a policy unit, that would be my big pitch, is that, you know, make, make furlough permanent in the form of UBI. Uh, but, you know, that might just be me showing my, my red tendencies again. I think we're a long way from that. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree that, that there's lots of policy potential there, but I think in terms of the political reality right now, we have a chancellor who is deeply, deeply anxious about how much money has been spent in the pandemic. And we are about as far from implementing a universal basic income in British society as we've been for, for a long time. So I think, um, you know, there's certainly been um, really interesting results of what, of, of what furlough has done. And I think looking to the United States and the sudden labor shortages that they're having where suddenly workers actually have just a little bit of agency and are saying, no, we don't want to go back to these terrible, terrible jobs. We are looking at some really fascinating economic interests and economic results of the pandemic. But I think that before we start talking about uh, policy ideas that might build solidarity, we have to look at the current political situation, certainly in this country, and the realities of what we are actually facing. And right now, the Labour Party is so far from any kind of viable shot at uh, making government. These sorts of ideas like UBI are just not even on the table. Well, Liz, as a political philosopher, I maintain the privilege of never having to engage in actual <laughs> politics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but do you think, though, Lise, I mean, just drawing on what you were saying there, is it the case, though, you think that the pandemic will have no impact in the sense of perhaps creating stronger recognition across society of the importance of protective institutions like social security? Because, again, I think if you were to read optimistically, yeah. In what's happened over the last 18 months. And you might say, well, one interpretation is that a much greater proportion of the adult working age population in a country like the UK recognizes yeah. the importance of having institutions like the welfare state in place. So, you know, in a conversation which has so far been quite pessimistic, is there any scope for optimism there, do you think? I mean, I think that we are a very, 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 very long way from um, the heyday of austerity. Um, and we are a long way from that, both in terms of popular sentiment and in terms of even how the Conservative Party is trying to position itself. I mean, I think what's been fascinating has been watching the Conservative Party try and reorient itself as a non-austerity 
party, as a party that is committed to using the state, or at least has some willingness to use the state to try and alleviate the worst social ills. So I do think we've seen a tremendous ideological reorientation. But I think that that stands in tension with what remains a kind of fundamental fiscal conservatism that is at the heart of uh, the Conservative Party and that is at the heart of this government. And we are a long way from uh, more ambitious utopian ideas about what what the state can do in order to create um, a a better and fairer society. Yeah, but it it reminds me also of this um, other historical myth of the post-war period, which is, of course, the idea of the post-war consensus. So the yeah. idea was that both the Conservatives and Labour basically bought into the same kind of domestic yeah. policy agenda. And yeah. I mean, I think that was always a myth, and it can be yeah. shown to be wrong on a whole series of grounds. But the reason why I think it's relevant in this context is because, you know, in some quarters, there's this idea that somehow we have a Conservative government in place, which is pursuing some, quotes left-wing ideas, that Mm -hmm. it is prepared to affirm the role of the state, that it has rejected austerity, that it is prepared to put radical furlough programs in place, that it is willing to try to protect low wage workers. But actually, is that really the case? It seems to me that the parallel with the 1950s and 1960s is that you have conservative governments in office allegedly pursuing these kinds of policies, but actually in a very tepid way, not really committing the investment, in some ways actually undermining surreptitiously the institutions so yeah this kind of confident reading about somehow the new path that conservatism is taking I am myself very skeptical well a key thing is missing that was part of the post-war consensus which is which is a really 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 strong trade union movement um uh really really strong role for organized labor in the policy making process which was which really underpinned the political configuration that we in retrospect, called consensus, you know, with its commitments to full employment um, and uh, and central role for trade unions at the bargaining table um, and the policymaking table. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's been some ideological reconfiguration, but I'm not sure that it has the, the teeth that we might associate with earlier, earlier periods. One of the things that strikes me, you know, I encounter solidarity writing about global justice and sort of the literature I work in, there are amazing books written about the principles of justice that should govern Uh, the redistribution of wealth across the globe. And one of the things that it never really deals with this literature is implementing these ideas. Uh, And in order to implement theories of justice, you have to have some form of solidarity uh, around people believing in the principles of justice. And this is the big problem, at least in my sort of little niche of the discipline, is that the theory never really hits the ground. Uh, So they're great cloud castles, but when you look around and see how they're going to work, they don't. I think there's a big problem. Sorry, David, I cut you off. But I think there's a big problem here in trying to negotiate what solidarity means for political theorists and what it means for historians who've used the application of the word in, in reality. And I'm not sure where Patrick situates himself in between those those two poles. But like, yeah, I mean, I see political theorists using the concept of solidarity and it has meaning in a political theory context. And I'm not a political theorist. So for me, solidarity is um, is a word that has been used by different actors to mean very, very different things. Um, and so, again, I struggle, I think, sometimes to try and pin down solidarity as a thing that we can either kind of encourage or discourage, because I genuinely think it means different things in different contexts. I'm sorry to bring everything back to Michael Young. Oh, I'm always, always. No, but I just, I just, <laughs> this is the influence I hope my book would have. <laughs> Look, how many copies of your book is this podcast going to sell? I mean, it's just thousands. It's going to be box office. (laughs) But my point was that what what just really brought me to my brought brought to my mind from the conversation you were just having with David is that a lot of the struggles of of post-war social democracy in Britain at the kind of level of political theory were about trying to define 
you know, concepts like equality and to some extent also community, you know, in, mm -hmm. in ways that were, as it were, sort of intellectually robust and meaningful. But what's yeah. very striking about Michael Young to some degree is that he just strikes me as a guy who just said, look, let's just get on with it. <laughs> let's, let's create institutions. Let's mobilize yeah. citizens and volunteers. Let, let's do things in communities. And I don't know, am I, am I misinterpreting it? I mean, it just strikes me as an interesting oh. departure. So I, um, you're not misinterpreting it, it at all. Um, but one of the things that I would say, I mean, so as I said, I'm fast, I was fascinated by Young, but I also became a critic of him as I worked on him. And I think you're right, he just gets on with it and develops institutions. Um, and that's a very late 20th century way of going about creating progressive social change. But what ends up getting lost for Young in a lot of Young's thinking is the class analysis. So because he positions himself against the left of the Labour Party um, and against some of the kind of core aspects of the Attlee government and embraces sociology as a discipline and particularly functionalist sociology, um, he moves away from a kind of sharp class analysis that sees things in terms of class struggle and a need to kind of organize a working class. And he moves towards this much softer, these much softer ideas of community and family and social solidarity. And so the class analysis part of things gets lost. So you end up, the influence that he ends up having, I think, is causing figures on the left, people on the left, to be more invested in, you know, community organizations or Citizens United or um, various forms of organizing that, that don't have a strong class analysis. And I think we actually need to return to that class analysis. I think that class analysis is, is essential, particularly at a time of such crazy economic inequality that we are currently living Oh, this is beautiful. And I know that David didn't want to, he did cut us off, but we just ignored him. And I think that's also sorry, beautiful. Sorry. Totally. Yeah, but I, you know, when Lee said we need a new form of class analysis, you know, it's been my sort of my, my pet peeve now for the past few years to respond to that. We need that, sure. We, we need to understand what the subject of sort of solidarity is and the, the, the people the, the, that we would try to appeal to. But I think we also need uh, to focus more on uh, our ideas about solidarity. And we need to combine a vision of solidarity that speaks to commonly held values, which are to some extent, to some larger extent than in the past, maybe independent of those social classes and those social economic groups. So what I'm trying to suggest is that as a bearer of solidarity, especially social democratic parties, but also other parties who might not see themselves specifically in that particular their tradition, but who still have a, a notion and affinity with that idea of uh, solidarity uh, 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 in that sense. Um, I think that they need to embrace a vision of solidarity that is more value-based and uh, that, that, speaks to, um, that speaks to voters, frankly, in, in terms of their values rather than in terms of the, the, social, the social process to which these values are created. I'm not sure we actually ever got to the meaning of solidarity after all but I'd like to thank our guests for an excellent conversation. If you'd like to read more about the importance of myth and politics, read Patrick Diamond's article, Myth and Meaning, Corbynism and the Interpretation of Political Leadership in the British Journal of Politics and International Relations. You can also follow Patrick on Twitter at PatrickDiamond1. You may also have heard that Lee Butler has a new book out. Be sure to read Michael Young, Social Science and the British Left, 1945-1970, from Oxford University Press. And follow Lise on Twitter at Lise R. Butler. And don't forget to show solidarity with us by following us on Twitter at The City Politics, K underscore Vossing, and GD Blunt. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. 
A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. And that's it for this run of City Politics Podcast. We hope to be back in the fall, and thank you for listening.